Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. All right, so the lecture this week deals with um, working in a global marketplace and it's really, it's so interesting how technology leapfrogs us into the future, whether we're ready for it or not. And so human beings have to be very much willing to adapt or face not being able to compete in the marketplace. If I go on eBay right now and list an item for sale, whatever it may be, I've got to compete against everybody else on earth that has that same item. It's very competitive. Like, and it's a great thing for buyers because when there's competition in the marketplace, it drives prices down. But if I've got the, the one, the only something exclusive, very limited edition of something, then that helps me control the price because lots of people want it so I can set the price wherever I want it. Good example, an easy example of this is like gaming systems or consoles. PS5, right? I don't own one, don't care to own one, but a lot of people would like one. It's been out for over a year, still can't get one. And if you can get one, you're either paying a aftermarket or secondary market markup, or you're buying it from a first party that's got it with a bundle and they're charging you a lot more for that bundle. And so this law of scarcity takes place. Another example is tennis shoes. Any tennis shoe fans in here? Nikes, Reebok, anything? I like tennis shoes, right? Well, some people are really into it, and if they go and they want this, they want this exact pair, that, but Nike knows there's this scarcity thing that happens in the market, so they purposefully only release a certain amount of those shoes because they want that hype to happen. They want people to stand in line for their product. They want the demand to be two, three, four times what the actual supply is because it makes it scarce, and what happens is they know, let's say they, there's 100,000 people that want this particular pair of shoes, but they're only going to put out 25,000. Well, that 75,000 in their mind thinks, well, next time I'm going to be early. I'm going to be first. I'm going to get there in line. I'm going to get mine. And then everybody else is going to be out. So it creates this scarcity mentality where the consumer thinks, you know, I've got to step up. And Nike knows this, and they, they really do this on purpose. They do that so they manipulate the market by controlling the, the supply. And so these are just some of the things we're going to talk about in this chapter. How does it... How does it work when we talk about competing globally? So why is global trade important to the United States and how is it measured? Why do nations trade? What are the barriers to international trade? How do governments and institutions foster world trade? Um, What are international economic communities? How do companies enter the global marketplace? What threats and opportunities exist in the global marketplace? What are the advantages of multinational corporations? And what are the trends in the global marketplace? And so there's still barriers to selling internationally. Um, eBay started this thing years ago. I used to sell on eBay. I got out of it just because a number of reasons. Uh, very costly to do so. The eBay takes a, a cut of your money. And uh, the, the seller is always wrong, regardless of what happens. So a per customer could buy a $100 item from you. They can actually take the item and break it and say it was broke, and they just, they just want their money back because they, they kind of bought something they, didn't, they couldn't afford or just needed the money back. So they can force you to take a refund or take a return on an item that they broke or the, or the post office broke, and then you're out that 100 bucks or whatever that item costs. So 
I had a lot of problems with it in the end, so I gave it up. But one thing they did implement towards the end was this idea of global or global selling, or they called it eBay Global. And what they did to try to simplify the process to ship internationally was they wanted all these things we sold in the United States to be able to be bought by people in other countries because people wanted these things. But there was this problem with international shipping that eBay sellers didn't want to have to deal with. So in order to mitigate that, they would they created these uh, shipping centers where if I sold an item to an international client, I would ship it to this U.S.-based uh, distribution center. They would repackage it or put a new label on it and ship it international for me. So I didn't have to deal with all the compliance because anytime I send something abroad, you have to fill out a form declaring what it is, where it's going, how much it's worth, and all these different things in different countries tax that or have different rules and regulations regarding what it is. So um, I used to ship stuff to this guy in South Africa and in order to ship him stuff, he would want me to declare a value lesser than what it was. And so then we have an integrity issue. So if I've sold you a $300 item and you want me to say 30, you know, it runs into these integrity issues. So um, yeah, eBay did a good thing with the global shipping, but I heard a lot of complaints out of it as I was getting out of it. So so let's talk about this a little bit more. So the importance of global business to the United States, trade-dependent jobs have grown at a rate of three times the growth of U.S.-dependent jobs. So that statistic alone says there's a lot of demand for facilitation of getting goods to other places on Earth. And so, like, um, there's this term that my good friend Bill Raboli taught me called sociological imagination. You can imagine that we went through a cycle of agrarian economy to an industrial revolution to a modern economy. But if you rewind the clock and look around the world, other economies are going through similar things where they started out agrarian. Now they're going through an industrial revolution or an industrial age. And eventually their goal is to get to a modern economy, service economy and, and thought economy where they're more consuming products and services and not creating them because other people around the world are doing that. And so... Today, it's very common to pick up a product and it'll say made in China, as this remote does, right? I would say if you just go like pick up a random product at Walmart or Dollar Tree, made in China is, is pretty ubiquitous like everywhere. But that's probably not the way it's going to be in the next 100 years. At some point, China's going to say, <clears throat> we don't want to be a manufacturer anymore. Our people want to be like Americans where they have service-based jobs, <clears throat> and they're more consumer-based, they're, they're, they're more middle-class. And so eventually, um, Chinese manufacturers say, where can we go somewhere else on Earth and set up a factory to help them boost their economy by having production, <clears throat> and at the same time, not have us do it as much? We can do it cheaper in another country. And so um, that sociological imagination applies to you guys as well. Um, if you would be willing to go to another country to open up a business that's in need, you may say America's got all the hamburger joints we need, as an example, but over here, <clears throat> they don't have them as much. And so we might need to go open up a shop somewhere else that's in more demand than it would be here. And we'll talk about that as the chapter evolves. What is this? <coughs> and so um, every U.S. state has realized a growth of jobs attributed to trade. So being able to facilitate... <clears throat> products and services around the globe is a growing industry. Trade has an effect on both service and manufacturing jobs. 
imports and exports, the developed nations, those with mature communication, financial, educational, and distribution systems are the major players in international trade. They account for about 70% of the world's exports and imports. Exports are goods and services that are made in one country and sold to another. Imports are goods and services that are bought from other countries. The United States is both the largest exporter and the largest importer in the world. <clears throat> so we do a lot of both. People in other countries want our goods and services. But we also want goods and services from other countries. So there's a lot of action, a lot of commerce that happens here. And this is one reason why America is a destination for people around the world. People want to come here because they know there's a lot of economic action happening and there's an opportunity there for them to be able to take advantage of that. So balance of trade, the difference between the value of a country's exports and the value of its imports during a specific time is, country, is a country's balance of trade. A country that exports more than it imports is said to have a favorable balance of trade, meaning we sell more stuff than we bring in. So that's, that's considered good because if uh, you have a trade imbalance for long enough, it could create a situation where you're running on a debt economy, which is kind of what we're doing right now. <clears throat> Countries that imports more than it exports is said to have an unfavorable balance of trade or a trade deficit. When imports exceed exports, more money from trade flows out of the country than it flows into. And so we have a situation where we're buying much more stuff than we're selling. Even though we still sell a lot, uh, we still bring in more. And so we have an imbalance of trade. All right, any questions about any of that so far? All right, so the changing values of currencies. This is an interesting uh, thing, and it's, it's playing out right now in front of our eyes. The currency market, markets operate under a system called floating exchange rate. The price of currencies float up and down based upon the demand for and supply of each currency. So <clears throat> the original intent of money was that it would be a scarce, limited resource that represented value. And so back in the day, long times ago, you know, generations ago, people used to place value on things like rocks, seashells, livestock, commodities like apples, oranges, bananas, things like that. That were, they were commodities that could be exchanged. The problem that you had was, and there's actually a term for this, um, I, it's escaped me at the moment, but it's basically a problem uh, of different needs where if an apple farmer wanted a pig, uh, he would have to make it so the pig farmer wanted apples at the same time. They both had to want what each other had. Otherwise, no barter or exchange could happen. And so <clears throat> in order to solve that problem, we created currency. So the farmer could say, well, I want that pig. How much does it cost? Well, it's going to take this much currency that I would feel comfortable exchanging that for my pig and then I could take that currency and buy whatever I wanted not just apples and so we created currency as a medium of exchange a way to barter without me having to have exactly what that person wanted uh, because like I said if I'm an apple farmer everybody's got to want apples in order for me to get something from them you know and we lived in a largely barter system for a long time even with currencies created we still did barter but nowadays, we're almost exclusively on a currency exchange where I will do some type of work. <clears throat> Money will be given to me in exchange for that work, and then I can use those dollars to buy anything that I want. Here's the big problem. Uh, up until 1971, 
dollars were tied to gold, meaning that there was a limited finite supply of those dollars that are associated with gold in bank, bank vaults and in reserves. And so, uh, meaning that the government just couldn't print money and, and give it out. The, the government had to be limited to what that gold supply was. And if we had stayed on the gold standard and not gotten away from it, the value of a dollar would have probably continued to go up. But because we've gone off the, do, the gold standard, we no longer have value associated with those dollars except by what the government says. We talk about the term fiat, F-I-A-T, <clears throat> which means by decree. Because of that, we've seen devaluation of the dollar over the past many decades. And um, you've, I probably mentioned the story about the candy bar example. Candy bar used to cost a nickel. Today, a candy bar costs a buck. That's a 20x devaluation of the buying power of a dollar. It's not that the candy bar got 20 times more expensive to make. In fact, technology has made it easier to make candy bars. We can get products and services quicker. We can, we can manufacture more of them in a tighter time frame. So it's easier to make candy bars than it was 50 years ago. But, uh, and with marketing, it's easier to tell people about, hey, buy our candy bars. Uh, but because of the devaluation of our currency, we've gotten to a point where it just costs more and more to buy those candy bars. Right now, <clears throat> it's as simple to create money as pressing a button. When the government, you hear about them printing billions and trillions of dollars, that's what they do. They go into a, a ledger by the Federal Reserve and they literally put an entry saying, we're gonna add you know, one, two, three, four trillion dollars to the balance sheets. And that do those dollars flow into the banking system to basically allow for credit to happen, people to be able to borrow money. And that's when actual money is created. When you go borrow, buy a house, you go uh, borrow, let's say you're buying a nice house, $200,000, the bank literally creates that money out of thin air. Boom, magic. That $200, they create out of thin air, and then they say, we're gonna use this $200,000 to buy this house from whoever it is, and now you pay us back plus interest over the next 30 years, good. Uh, could fiat money be considered a, a Ponzi scheme? It, or yes. A, uh, it, yes, and I, and I mean, just directly, yes. I mean, like it, we are in an experimental phase in monetary history. It's called modern monetary theory, MMT. We don't know what the end result of which, but I'll say that every currency throughout history that has been devalued eventually collapses. You're seeing it right now in places like Venezuela and El Salvador, um, and we are not immune to that. You know, I mean, so if we have a hyperinflationary event, um, and these things sometimes take years or decades to to manifest, but eventually my kids, when they're my age, um, which is about 30 years from now, you know, that loaf of bread that we used to, you know, be two dollars is going to be six or eight dollars. You know, and we're going to wonder what happened, you know, like gallons of milk will be $10 a gallon, you know, it's just what, what happened, you know. Uh, and you hear people complaining about it, but it's a inflation or de currency devaluation is a hidden tax. It's, it's something that happens, it's, ins it's insidious because you don't see it like you do when you pay the seven cents, you know, when you pay taxes on, on, on purchases. It's, uh, you're also losing that value. I mean, real inflation right now is somewhere between probably 7 and 15%. So that means... If I go try to buy a dollar item today, next year with that same dollar, uh, I'm only gonna have 93 cents of buying power or 93 to 85 cents of buying power. So 
those prices are going to creep up a little bit more, you know, and you see it slowly manifest. And there's some other hidden inflation that happens. So if I go buy a box of cereal that's $3, well, next year, it still may be 3 bucks, but they might have 10% less cereal in the box. You know, the packaging stays the same, but the amount of content they put in there, instead of having 15.4 ounces, it's got 14.3 ounces. I know it's like nuts, but when I was a kid, the ice cream cartons used to be like, like have a certain shape to it that was like oval and stuff. And now they're con concave. Have you noticed that? Like they've, 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 there's like a hidden tax. They're giving you less products and service for your money. So there's all these things that are happening. Um, if a country decides that its currency is not properly valued in international currency markets, the government may step in and adjust the currency's value. In a devaluation, a nation lowers the value of its currency relative to other currencies. This makes that country's exports cheaper and should, in turn, help the balance of payments. So there's a lot of complex uh, mathematics happening here and a complex uh, monetary policy that's happening. Um, we're in a, basically a black hole situation when it comes to the national debt. I don't know what it is right now, like $27 trillion, something like that. I mean, it's ridiculous. And... Yeah. What you got, man? Uh, what exactly is a Ponzi scheme? So a Ponzi scheme is where it does, it's not self-sustaining. It has to constantly bring in new cash. Like, if you open a business, like, if I open a business and I put money into the business, it's supposed to put money out of the business. You know, that's the idea. But the Ponzi scheme works like this. Somebody puts money into the business and the money flows out to certain people, like owners and, and shareholders, but it doesn't really produce, you know. Uh, that's what it's supposed to produce, but it, it actually is kind of like a, like, let me give you an example. Let's say you have a zombie corporation and they do $20 million a year in sales, uh, do some profits, but really on, on paper it's showing some profits, but they're really losing money. So they, bring, they keep bringing in investments saying, oh, we're making money, we're making money. But in fact, they're losing money, but the owners or the CEO still taking a salary and making it look like it's doing well, but at the, but at the time he's just ripping it off and there's no real output. It's the reason they have output to give back to shareholders is because of new money coming into it. The biggest Ponzi scheme on record is Bernie Madoff. He stole like $65 billion and it was through this. He had an investment firm where he was bringing in new investments, but he was losing money, but he was kept bringing in new money to offset those losses. He was paying back old money with new money. That's what a Ponzi scheme is. Yeah, you have to continually have new money coming in. It's not self-sustaining. The idea is at some point, the input, the capital input goes away, and it's just a self-sustaining business. If I go and open a restaurant right now and I put $100,000 into it, the hope is I won't have to put any more cash into it. It'll just be self-sustaining, and any repairs or taxes or anything I have to pay, payroll, that all comes out of the restaurant. You know, it's self-sustaining at that point. Um, but, if, I mean, not to say that owners don't have to put cash back into their business, but a Ponzi scheme would be where I'm using influx of new cash to pay back old, old debts and old, old, people, old uh, investors, and uh, there's no real promise of it being self-sustaining, you know. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, the national debt, going back to that briefly, it's a black hole. I mean, the interest payments alone are ridiculous, and nobody can explain to me. I've never heard anybody explain a way out of it other than, um, there's there's two possible outcomes, and what you got, Ron? Good. Uh, I have two things. Go. Uh, the one I think the, the only way we can get out of this black hole 
Precious metals, yeah, gold standard. The other thing is, uh, uh, it says, I think I read a study once that it's like by 2028, China's supposed to eclipse the United States. As far as monetary, or like monetary dominance on Earth? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's also military. And military, and there was a theory once that I heard that. Right. And the U.S. dollar, what it really means is like military. Power. Right, Does right. China have the biggest military? I'm not sure. I, I don't want to misquote. It doesn't have it yet, but it's like by like the end of the decade, it's supposed to have the biggest military. Right. You know... I like I like talking game theory, and game theory is where you kind of look at a situation and try to game it out of what could happen. And the two things that could happen with this national debt is that we do a soft default, which is what we're doing now. We're actually increasing the monetary supply so that those debts that we have actually devalue. We're devaluing our own debt over long periods of time. That's the soft default. The hard default is we can't pay it, we're not going to pay it which causes a worldwide economic collapse. We don't want to do that. So option A is way better, even though it's still not good, because what happens in the meantime is that as we devalue currency, it devalues everybody's efforts. If I work for $10 an hour next year, that $10 is only going to be worth you know, $9.50 or, or 9 because of inflation, because of what I can buy. Even if I'm getting that same $10, my ability to purchase goods goes down, and it's the way for everybody. So what you got? So is that why, like, I remember we were talking about America being in debt and they were talking about printing money. So right. I was like, well, why can't they just print the money? And somebody was saying like... Because that creates more debt. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the black hole. Is that if this, if this black hole represents America's debt, mm -hmm. they say, well, let's print enough money to get out of it. So we print enough to get out of it, but then we got this problem. You know? And it, but what ends up happening is we do, it doesn't do this, it, gets, it does this. So we print some more to get out of debt, but then it creates this problem, then we print some more, right. you know, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. What's up? Who got a question? Oh, good, Scott. I just want to ask your opinion on, like, cryptocurrency. Uh-huh. Sure. I'm a fan of Bitcoin. I'm going to lie to you. Um, I've done a lot of reading, and I've done a lot of uh, research on it. Um, not financial advice by any means. Everybody should do their own research, because it's a hard topic to get your head around. It took me... Yeah, it took me a long time to, to understand it. I mean, and it's not a, and I've tried to explain it to other people, and even me trying to explain it to people, like you can't see it until you've done the research and understand the value proposition. But just like gold, the thing that gives some of these coins value is its scarcity and its utility. Gold has the same value proposition in that it's scarce, it's a hard asset. Um, but, you know, the jury is kind of out on these, but if you look at the success of like Bitcoin, the number one in the world, um, the market has spoken as far as the value proposition. I mean, today it's like 50,000 a coin. So there is something to that. I'll say that 99% of the public still hasn't done a lot of research on it. And it's still very much from a financial advisor standpoint of which I'm not one. <clears throat> financial advisors are very hesitant to go down that path. But I would recommend any student doing research on it because as an academic um, and as a business teacher especially, it would be a disservice to not research it and not look at it. And I've read <clears throat> probably five different books about it. I've watched a lot of videos, listened to a lot of podcasts, and there is a value proposition there. But um, as an as a, as a academic person, um, I get it, but I don't offer any specific financial advice. I think everybody should research it though and look into it. What's up? Did you have a question, Ryan? Yeah. 
I was thinking about something very beautiful. It was like, I, I, I was thinking to myself, if we have this, if we keep just putting money in money, I, I don't see like America like lasting another 50 years. Yeah, it's not sustainable. It's just not. I mean, we're delaying f- current pain by, we're basically borrowing money to delay present pain. If we quit printing money today, it would be a dramatic economic impact. I mean, you'd have very dire austerity measures, austerity meaning painful adjustments that we'd have to make. Um, And it would be widespread through all our government services. I mean, schools, roadways. I mean, there's millions of people that work for the government. You know, there'd be layoffs. I mean, it'd be very dramatic. And so in order to avoid that pain, we we keep pumping money into the debt with the hope that we will do us in, in 30, 50, 100 years from now, that debt will just diminish over time. Because if I, you know, like if I borrow $200,000 for a house today and I buy that house for $200,000, I'm thinking in 30 years it might be worth $500,000. So, you know, that $200,000 I borrowed plus interest will be somewhat diminished in that time frame, you know. So, I mean, I know people that bought, you know, borrowed 40000 for a house that's now worth 200000 you know. So, that's not a guarantee, but that's just an example of how money depreciates uh, over time, and it takes more of it to get that same value. Um, so why nations trade? A country that has an absolute advantage when it can produce and sell a product at a lower cost than any other country, or when it's the only country that can provide a product. So when you're a country that is the only one on earth or, or one of very few that can produce this particular type of product, it gives you an advantage, you know. What's something not American-based? What's something that it comes from somewhere else that's a limited resource or something scarce that you get that you only get it from this place on Earth, you know? Like, any, any ideas come to come to mind? I was thinking, like, oil. But, yeah, there's a ton of oil in the, in the Middle East, so. Anything, any other ideas? Scarce resource. Think of a country that has a lot of these resources. <clears throat> Nothing coming to mind? No? Um, seems like there's a good, like, I'll give you, well, I'll give you one that's U.S. based. In North Carolina, we're the number one producer of sweet potatoes on earth. We do something like 80 or 90% of sweet, sweet potatoes on earth in North Carolina. And so that is a, <clears throat> something that gives us an absolute advantage in that, I mean, other people do produce them, but, but due to our climate, due to our um, the type of soil we have, they grow really well here. So there's just uh, I'm about to enter sweet potato potato season with Society St. Andrew, and there's just a just a ton of them that come out of the ground this time of year. Um, so that's just one example of something. But other countries have things like that that they they produce. Like anybody ever eat the Himalayan pink salt? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about in the grocery store? It's the fancy salt that you can put. You never, yeah. Um, well, I'm not a salt snob by any means, but my mom bought it and she recommended it. And one reason people like the Himalayan pink salt is because, uh, I guess, of the cachet of having Himalayan pink salt, number one, but also it, doesn't, it hasn't been processed the same way like your normal table salt has been, you know. And so the only place on earth you can get Himalayan pink salt is in the Himalayas. You know, that's a... That's an advantage they have of having that particular product. So um, that's just another example of something that's, uh, if you want that particular product, you're going to have to pay for it So and, and, and get it from that location. So 
The United States, for example, has an absolute advantage in reusable spacecraft <coughs> and other high-tech items. Even if the United States had an absolute advantage in both coffee and air traffic control systems, it should still specialize and engage in trade. Why? The reason is the principle of comparative advantage, which says that each country should specialize in the products it can produce the most readily and cheaply and trade those products for goods that foreign countries can produce most readily and cheaply. This specialization ensures greater product availability at lower prices. So, yeah, that's just one reason why we have globalization and we've had jobs go overseas is because other countries can produce these things cheaper, faster, better than we would be able to. When we lost a lot of jobs over the years to automotive industry going to open up plants in different places, and part of the reason was labor is one of your biggest costs in business. And when you're paying a line worker 40 to $60 an hour or more to produce a vehicle, when you can export that job to another country and pay probably 25% of that, so a lot less wages, but still get the same product, that's a win from a business standpoint. So um, free trade is the policy of permitting the people and business of a country to buy and sell where they please without restrictions. The opposite of free trade is protectionism in which a nation protects its home industries from outside competition by establishing artificial trade barriers such as tariffs and quotas. So there could be tariffs and quotas on certain products in order to protect uh, the industries that are, that are within. So if I can produce rice as an example, very, very cheaply and better than everybody else on earth, I could just ship it anywhere and destroy the local economy for rice. So a country might say, well, it's great that you can produce that rice so cheaply, but we're not going to let you bring in so much because if you bring in all that you want, all our rice farmers are going to go out of business. We, we don't have any need for them. And so uh, we put this policy in place, either a tariff or a quota, to say we don't want you to bring in so much. A tariff is a tax. I don't know if the next slide addresses that. No. Tariffs, when you hear that word tariff, think of tax. So even though you produce this rice very cheaply, we might put a... 10, 15, 20% tax on it in order to offset that cheapness a little bit and discourage you from sending so much over here. Quotas is a physical number uh, that a country might say, we're going to not let you bring in more than a million pounds of rice. That's the max. Because we have to also cater to our local farmers and make sure that they can be taken care of and, and, and be able to earn a living. So questions about any of this or comments? Good comments today, by the way. So, fear of trade and globalization. Uh, there is a cost to everything. There's sometimes, you, sometimes you see the benefits, but then you have to think, what's the cost of this? So the continued protest during the meetings of the WTO, or the World Trade Organization, and the protest during the con uh, convocation of the World Bank and the IMF, or the International Monetary Fund, these are three organizations we discuss later, show that many people fear world trade and globalization. What do they fear? The negatives of global trade are as follows. Before I get into that, there's a book by a guy named Thomas Friedman. It's called The World is Flat. I read this book probably 10 or 15 years ago now. In the book, he talks about how the world has flattened dramatically in our lifetime. Um, you, know, you guys, for the most part, I know some of you do, but for the most part, have never existed in a time without the Internet. Like, that's, that, that's just, I mean, some of you remember pre-internet, but I remember vividly, I was in high school, 1993, four, somewhere in there, we, the internet came online and people could plug into the modem and dial up, and it was very rudimentary in the early days of the internet. 
But it took off very quickly. I mean, the Internet's only like 25, 30 years old from a consumer standpoint. And the Internet initially was intended to be a communication medium. Hey, I can send you an email. We can talk. There was very little video, if any, in the early days. Very basic, rudimentary news-based websites and information websites, but very, very basic. But then it quickly became commercialized. And that commercialization of the Internet, where you can buy and sell things online, it displaced a large number of people. Like, I didn't have to have uh, a call center in Goldsboro, North Carolina with 300 employees. I can have a call center abroad and pay those employees, you know, 10 or 20% of what I'm paying the people in Goldsboro. And not only can they manage my calls for my company, they can manage calls for other companies, 24-7, 365, and three shifts. And so, yeah, I mean, these, these types of things have manifest. Uh, and, and we're watching it unfold right in front of us. So these are some of those negatives. Millions of jobs, you know, American jobs, have been lost due to the imports or production shifting abroad. Most find new jobs, but often those jobs pay less. Yeah, <clears throat> and it's not just outsourcing. It's also insourcing. Um, back in the day, Walmart used to have in-store butchers where they went and they, they butchered meat. They would process meat and, and produce it. Walmart said this is inefficient. Not only is it inefficient, but it's dangerous. So we're going to centralize all our butcher, butchering operations. And so we'll do all the meat cutting at one factory location, a regional outlet, and we'll ship that meat to the stores and they can put, just put it out. That's what the butchers do now. So all these butchers were displaced. And Walmart did offer them a job, you know, an opportunity to stay on, but a lot of them uh, either lost their job or took a pay cut going to a different position. Um, so outsourcing is not the only threat. These companies uh, adjusting over time is also a threat. Means of others fear losing their job, especially at those companies operating under competitive pressures. Employers often threaten to export jobs if workers do not accept pay cuts. <clears throat> Service and white-collar jobs are increasingly vulnerable to operations moving offshore. In my industry, eventually they could just say, oh, we're paying Ryan a salary every year. Why don't we just get a Ryan to record uh, a lecture and then just put it online and then fire run and just have that going for the next hundred years. They can just watch the lecture and we'll have somebody come in and update it every five years or so. And that's, you know, they don't have to, they could have a college that's literally like 10 or 20 people work at and all the content was already pre-recorded by a contractor to record that content. And then your contract's up, no benefits, no salary, go away. Could happen. I'm not, uh, you know, and so if a student has a question, they could just submit it on a support ticket or email or whatever. So sending domestic, that's not, if you're listening to this podcast, please don't fire me. So, um, Sending domestic jobs to another country is called outsourcing, a topic you can explore more in depth. Uh, many U.S. companies such as Dell, IBM, AT&T have set up call service centers in India, the Philippines, and other countries. Um, <clears throat> we used to have a call center here in Goldsboro in Marmac. Does anybody remember that? It was a AT&T call center. I went to visit there a couple times when I worked for the University of Mount Olive as a recruiter. And you go in there, and there's hundreds of people sitting at all these cubicles doing these, these, these call center you know, activities, you know, tech support and things like that. But eventually, those jobs got uh, outsourced. They said, you know, we're paying all these people this exorbitant hourly rate might be, you know, $13 an hour or whatever, we can just send these jobs abroad and not have to have, you know, these people sitting in Goldsboro. So some of the benefits of globalization, though. A closer look reveals that globalization has been the engine that creates jobs and wealth. Benefits of uh, global trade include the following. 
Productivity grows more quickly when countries produce goods and services which they have a comparative advantage. Living standards increase faster. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you always hear about wage competition and companies not willing to pay, but if they're making a lot of money, if they need employees to produce their goods and services, they will pay up. Uh, you know, and sometimes it's not always uh, as fast as we would like, but increasingly I see, especially nowadays, you see companies willing to pay sign-up bonus. Has anybody got a sign-up bonus recently for starting somewhere? Yeah, I saw McDonald's was offering like a $200 sign-up bonus at one of the McDonald's uh, I drove past recently. I was like, so yeah, they, they will pay up if they need for people to step up and, and provide that goods and service. One problem is that the big G20 countries have added more than 12,000 restrictive employment uh, or export and import measures since 2008. So they want to be more restrictive and control uh, the narrative of how that happens. Global competition and cheap imports keep prices down. So inflation is less likely to stop economic growth. However, in some cases, this is not working because countries manipulate their currency to get a price advantage. An open economy spurs innovation with fresh ideas from abroad. Through infusion of foreign capital and technology, global trade provides poor countries with the chance to develop economically by spreading prosperity. More information is shared between two trading partners that may not have much in common initially, including insight into local culture and customs, which may help the two nations expand their collective knowledge and learn ways to compete globally. So trade is good for a lot of reasons. It's good for um, citizens because you're able to access markets that you may not have in the past. Like, it's so, has anybody ever bought anything off Wish or Sheen? You know, those apps, my kids like that stuff, it's cheap. So like you can order like a cell phone case for like a dollar off like Wish or, or Sheen or whatever, cheap stuff. But the reason why we can get that cell phone case for a dollar is because it's coming to us from a country that can produce a thousand of those, those things like a second for pennies on the dollar. And so to them, if, they, if it costs them two cents to make, making 98 cents on that thing is direct to consumer is a good deal. Um, and so like, yeah, there, it does open up more access to goods and services abroad, but the cost of that is sometimes we give up jobs in order to make that happen. So um, I don't know, any comments on any of this of what's, what's going on like currently in the world or, so yes, sir. Yes. So is all of this what happens in the world trade center? Or is that like you talking about rephrase your question? Like you know the world trade center yeah. in New York. Right. Is is all of this it is related to that. So what, what that helps facilitate is being able to uh, you want to have open trading with within reason. So if we allow for wide open trading without any type of restrictions you would have the big dominant players on earth would, would basically dominate all global trade. And, there, and the smaller countries would be at a huge disadvantage. And so these smaller countries use their sovereignty to put restrictions and quotas on trade in order to make sure that that trade balance is happening in a way that's beneficial to them. Because what if we said, okay, you're a small country, you're nothing compared to our, our market might. We could just go in and open up all kinds of franchises and put everybody out of business in that country, you know. So think about how what the, the Walmart effect, when Walmart goes into a small town, um, all other grocers lose about 20% of their sales from day one and they never regain it. But a lot of mom and pop businesses close their doors, hardware stores and things like that. Mm -hmm. Think about doing that all the, all the countries on earth. So you have to, 
be selective in how you allow for globalization to happen in your country. So good question. Any other comments or questions? All right, we'll take a time out here for today. We'll pick it back on Thursday and wrap up Chapter 3. Check out your email. Um, I did send an alert to those of you that had some um, incompletes on your homework, so make sure you look at that. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email back. I'll see you guys Thursday, same time, same place, okay?